I'm going to speak to you today about being able to defend the gospel, to being able to demonstrate to a, a lost world why we have the truth. And so this essentially becomes part one of the presentation in the Bible, in the Bible study. Part two will be the sermon when we will demonstrate through Jesus' own words about the vitality of the gospel, what Jesus said, what salvation is all about. But first, when you meet a lost world, you need to be able to speak to them on a level that they understand. And so what I have found is that we have to demonstrate to people through history, through facts, through hard evidence, effectively, why we believe what we believe. Uh, and so the evidence supporting Jesus Christ as a historical figure, is both staggering and overwhelming. Uh, and I'm going to demonstrate that to you today, and I'm going to give it to you in a way that you can give it to other people. That's why we do this. I want you to be able to say to your friends, people that you have relationships with, you need to understand who Jesus was. And let me say it to you from a factual, from a historical point of view, uh, before you get involved in any greater spiritual discussion. And I think that's how you do that. Recently, I pray that God uh, always gives me opportunities to do this. About four or five months ago, I was traveling back from uh, north to Florida on business. Uh, and I was supposed to fly because I have uh, claustrophobia. I always fly in the first row uh, on the aisle. It's just I have to because otherwise I, I can't get on the plane. As I get older, I get kookier. Uh, and whatever it is, I know these issues that I have. And so I come to terms with them. And so... I already have these flights booked for months in advance. I flew up, no problem. I had my seat, 1B, right on the aisle. 1A, I guess it is. And then I find on the return that they somehow pulled my seat. I'm now backward in the plane, not on the aisle, and now I can't fly on this plane. And I have to get back to Florida because I have teaching responsibilities, or I will teach over a weekend probably 700 people. I need to get back. Uh, and so what ensued then was about an hour and a half of crying, wheedling uh, with the airlines. You know what it's like. And having to go to manager on top of manager on top of manager. Finally, I get somebody who says, fine, we'll put you back in the first seat you should that we, we pulled you out of. And gives me the first seat. Now I'm thinking, why did I have to go through all this problem to get my seat back? And I sit in this seat and a woman sits next to me. And after a short period of time... Uh, uh, I mentioned to her that we were talking about our children and she was flying to Florida for a conference and I mentioned to her that my son was a minister and she says, oh, how does that happen? And I gave her a little bit of the family background and then she said to me, well, let me ask you something, she goes. You don't really believe that all those animals in the world were on an ark. I go, no, as a matter of fact, I do believe that. No, she goes, you don't believe that a that a man was in the belly of a whale for three days, do you? No, as a matter of fact, I, I do believe that. I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, uh, are you a Christian? Well, I'm Roman Catholic, she said. I said, well, uh, you believe in Jesus? Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. I go, well, let me ask you something. How will you know how God wants you to live unless you have the roadmap that God has given you demonstrating to you how to live. I then gave her what you have. I, I had my iPad. I opened it up. I said, here, read this. And about 20 minutes later, her, she popped her head up and looked at me and said, I believe that God intended for you to sit next to me today. And I can't tell you what a feeling that is 
uh, for a Christian to know that somehow God has used you for a purpose in someone's life. Now, I didn't get involved in a lengthy explanation of the theology of Christianity. That's not the time. But the point is to begin to start the discussion. And that's what this is about. So I want to be able to give you some tools that you'll be able to do this. As an introduction, there's no question about it that 2,000 years ago in a little town in the Middle East, in Bethlehem, the most important event, the most important event in the history of the world took place where God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to become a human being and ultimately become the perfect sacrifice once and forever for all of humanity. Now, the world would never be the same, never be the same after that point. So from a humble beginning in a stable, God would send hope and light into the world that was full of darkness. And in his three years of public ministry, Jesus would revolutionize, would absolutely revolutionize how man would think of God. You have to understand that Jesus came as a Jew. The Jews had been worshiping Yahweh for about 1,500 years. They had a certain preconception of who God was. And now Jesus had come uh, at the behest of God the Father, and Jesus would revolutionize, revolutionize the very aspect of how God would want us to think about him. Uh, and remember that the Jews had been told that the only way they could atone for their sins was on the Day of Atonement, the High Holy Day, when they would have a sacrifice of an animal, multiple animals, in the temple, and year after year, they would have to go back and repeat the sacrifice. And obviously, God was attempting to teach the Jewish people that the atonement of animals could not forgive your sins forever. Because all that was happening was that your sins were being covered up for one year. And then again, you would have to reapply and reapply and reapply. And untold millions of animals uh, are being sacrificed. Uh, and the point of the whole thing, the point of the whole thing is that God wanted the Jewish people to be prepared to accept their Messiah who would come and be this perfect sacrifice once and for all. But the Jews were called to be a nation of priests. They were called to be ultimately evangelists, to go out in the world and spread the word of God. And instead of doing that, what did they do? Ultimately, uh, because they had been led into evil, their minds had been closed, they ultimately sacrificed and murdered Jesus Christ. And so it was made abundantly clear from the beginning of time, uh, through the word of God, that the sacrifice of animals would not, in fact, save humanity. Um, and so that becomes the predicate for us as we begin to understand who Jesus is, what he means to us, what he means to a world. And now here's a point that you need to emphasize to your friends. No other major religious leader, I don't care what religion it is, whether it's Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus, none of them had a religious leader who said, I am God. None of them. None of them. And as we will see later, none of them had a religious leader who was resurrected from the dead. And that's what separates us from all the other religions. That's what makes it complete difference. And that's something that you need to know. And here's another thing that you need to emphasize to your friends who will say to you, well, there's a lot of different things, a lot of good faiths, a lot of good religions. But here's the point. 
only the Christian movement, only the Christian movement resulted and impacted mankind with hospital buildings, orphanages, and an outreach to the poor that you see going on every single day in ways that absolutely no other religion has. And so it's important for you to emphasize that also as you come to uh, explain to people why, why we believe in what we believe. Now, it's important for you to indicate to people that the Bible is reliable. You speak to people, they need to understand that. They have been uh, miseducated. They have heard things on television and in mass media about how the Bible is a bunch of fables, that it's not really true, that it's all made up. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. That could not be more wrong. The Bible is the most reliable book in the world. It's written by eyewitnesses. And I want you to think of something, that, that it, it is effectively... God's word to man about how he wanted to have a relationship with man. Can you imagine that God, our creator, would want to re reach out to us and have a relationship with us? And from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the one common thread in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again. I could stand up here and speak to you for weeks about all the elements, as I know your pastor has, about how Jesus is in every aspect of every book of that Bible. And so here's what you need to understand. The Bible is 66 separate books. There's one Bible, Old and New Testament. One Bible, not two Bibles, one Bible. 66 separate books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three separate continents and yet here they are not knowing each other not communicating with each other over 1500 years having different cultures different languages and yet somehow through the holy spirit this common thread is written throughout the bible this is not a man-made book no man-made book would do this and the foreshadowing of jesus christ is all over the Bible, time and time again. I'm just starting a series um, in my uh, Sunday classes uh, on the three days. Do you have any idea how many times the three days appears in Scripture? Just in the Old Testament, the three days appears 40 separate times. 40 separate times. Well, what does it mean? It means that God was preparing the Jewish people for something stupendous. That would occur after the third day. What would happen after the third day? Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, can you imagine from Genesis right through to the coming of Jesus Christ that 40 times, 40 times God puts in scriptures that three days would be a stupendous figure for humanity. And so it tells you this. And so here's the other point about the Bible. Archaeology supports the Bible. I laugh whenever I see that some new uh, discovery has taken place in the Mideast. Recently, they discovered uh, that there was a pool in Bethsaida. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, you will remember that there was a crippled man who sat by the pool of Bethsaida, right? And waited to be cured. Uh, and Jesus came and cured him. Well, 
uh, you know, the secularists thought this is all made up. There is no pool of Bethsaida. We never heard of such a thing. Well, guess what? They recently found the pool at Bethsaida. Uh, described precisely the way it was described by uh, John with the porticos. Can you imagine that? And so here's an example, a recent example. And when you read the Bible, you will see that, that the cities that are mentioned, the, the uh, uh, various geological formations, the geographical positions in the Bible, time and time again, the government officials, the historical figures mentioned in the Bible, time and time again, they are accurate. There's no other book that does this. The Book of Mormon doesn't do this. Okay? Only the Bible does this, that it becomes effectively a, a fact book on what took place historically. And one of the greatest historians, one of the greatest historians that even the modern historical world recognizes is Luke. Luke, Dr. Luke. Uh, and Luke, in his writings, names 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, all without an error. How about that? All without a, an error. Um, and so then you'll hear people say this. Well, sure. But here's the problem. The Bible's been translated and translated and translated and written. And you can't believe that what you're reading today is what actually took place. False. False. I can tell you this, first of all, about the Old Testament. Uh, uh, in 1947... Uh, what, what they discovered was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, here they found documents that had been hidden for 2,000 years, 2,000 years, in a cave. And when they opened it up, they found what, what looked to be and was the book of Isaiah. And so now they had a manuscript dated back 2,000 years, which was now 1,000 years earlier than the previously known manuscript. All right? Earliest manuscript. So now the question becomes, all right, this is 2,000 years. How accurate is it? They found that it was 99.5% accurate to what we're reading today. All right? Proof positive. Proof positive that, that what we have came from original documents that were not misinterpreted or mistranslated. Uh, and the New Testament, even more so, because what we have with the New Testament are literally thousands of manuscripts that were created from within the first 100, 150, 200 years of when Jesus walked in this world. They were made from original translations, from Greek, from Aramaic, from Hebrew. And so we have over and over and over again translations recent in time to Jesus' life. Who, who give us the same writings of what we have today. These are incredible source texts. And, and what do they tell us? Well, it tells us that when you check the Gospels, written by four separate individuals, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, two of them are eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses. The other two were close friends of eyewitnesses, all written uh, within some 15, 20 years of Jesus' life, except the Gospel of John written by an eyewitness, probably 60 years after Jesus walked in this world. And you will see that the same biographical facts exist. Born in a manger, born of a virgin, having a ministry of three years, miracles completed, crucified on the cross, and resurrected from the dead. 
Now, these people didn't sit there and copy each other's notes, but we find the accuracy is supported, and that's how you, you support accuracy. You get eyewitnesses, you get evidence from different perspective, but when you stand back, it all comes together. It's all absolutely the same. And so, one of the things that I like to read is, I'd like you to turn, if you would, if you have your Bibles, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Verse 1. And this is important because this is how uh, Luke is going to tell you he came to write. And what was his background as he came to write? Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Let me stop. He's a historian. I've investigated personally everything from the beginning. This is now written about 10 years or so after Jesus has been crucified. I've investigated. I have gone back and interviewed. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've checked the facts. I've interviewed his mother. All of this is unsaid, but it is implied. It seemed good also to me to write an, accord, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So what does it mean? It means that there were other writings. There were other writings that were being done contemporaneously. How do you like that? All right. They didn't show up in the Bible, but they had the writings of the life of Jesus. And here he went back, and here he investigated, and here he concluded that they were accurate. And then turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. How do we know it's reliable? How do we know? How do we know? Well, here you have Paul, a Pharisee, who meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, who will become the greatest evangelist in the history of the world, who will ultimately write two-thirds of the New Testament, who, who most historians will say is in the top five most significant people in the history of Western civilization. And now look what he says here in verse uh, five. Talking about Jesus. Actually, we'll start with verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, underline that. 500 of the brothers, people who were alive, who walked and saw Jesus, 500 of them at the same time, most of whom are still living. These aren't made up. These aren't fables. They were living witnesses, <clears throat> though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally 
seen. So what does it mean? It means that we have a plethora of eyewitnesses. People who walked and saw Jesus, who were contemporaneous. And here's something to consider. If what they were writing, and this is all being written now within about 10 years of Jesus' death, if all of what they were writing was able to be confounded, was able to be said as false, wouldn't there be writings by other people who said, this is wrong, this is a lie, this is outrageous. You won't see anything like that. Why? Because they knew the truth. They knew the truth. And that's the point of this. And so we have the truth. We sit with the truth. Uh, and, and let me give you some other historical facts that are important. Uh, there are numerous historians during the same period of time that Jesus was alive or shortly thereafter that accept the fact of Jesus' uh, birth and existence. These are historical writings who are not Christians. Um, some of them are Romans, uh, Tacitus, a first century Roman historian considered one of the most accurate historians of the ancient world indicated that Nero persecuted and tortured the Christians. He also wrote, quote, Christus, from whom the name of the group had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. How do you like that? All right. Then Flavius Joseph, a, a, a Jewish historian, who went over and became a Roman historian, but really was Jewish, uh, writes, in his book, The Jewish Antiquities, that Jesus was a wise man who did surprising feats, taught many, won over many followers, and his followers believed he was to be the Messiah. Now, he didn't say Jesus was the Messiah because he was a Jew. He was not a Christian. He didn't believe in it. But he recorded the fact that Jesus existed as a, as a, uh, a historical figure. And so you see this, that I've given you uh, many examples uh, about that in my writings. And so the next question becomes this. Well, who did Jesus say he was? And this is a big deal because here's what you're going to hear from the world. Well, yes, yes. I believe Jesus was a good man. I believe he was a prophet. Uh, I believe he was a wise man. I believe he did a lot of good things. But, uh, come on. God? And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, that's the devil's lie. That's the devil's lie. Because the one thing Jesus made perfectly clear is Jesus said he was God. Don't ever, ever, ever not understand that. Jesus said he was God. He said it over and over and over again in so many ways. And one of the first things you need to understand is you need to keep a copy of the seven I am's of Jesus Christ. I keep a copy in my Bible. All right. I keep a copy in my Bible. The seven I am's. You want to know what Jesus said about himself? Here they are. Here are the sayings. John chapter six, verse thirty five. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Does that sound like a man? I don't think so. John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. John 10, verse 7. I am the gate for the sheep to be saved. He didn't say I'm one of the gates. He didn't say there's a number of doors. He didn't say there's many ways. I am 
the gate. John 10, verses 11 and 14. I am the good shepherd who sacrificed his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Ladies and gentlemen, is there any confusion? Jesus didn't say it once as a throwaway line. He said it over and over and over again. He indicated Jesus is God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is God. Fully man, fully God. And only as fully man and fully God could he go to the cross and be your sacrifice once and for all. No mere man could be the sacrifice for all humanity. No man was perfect. Only a perfect, sinless sacrifice could once and for all be our eternal sacrifice. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And finally, John 15, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Folks, couldn't be clearer. Jesus said over and over and over again in these sayings that he was God, that there was only one way to come to, to God the Father. And so Jesus categorically taught this right from the beginning. And he said it very interesting. He said uh, in John chapter 5, verse 46, he wrote that Moses wrote about me. Jesus, what are you saying? Moses wrote about you? Yes, he did. Uh, and he indicated that. Then he said that Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. John chapter 8, 56. Turn to that just so you, you can see it with your own eyes. And he's saying this now to the religious elite who refused to accept Jesus as who he is. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear who he is. <coughs> Look, it started verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. How do you like Jesus? You like Jesus? Think Jesus is worried about being politically correct? All right. Let me tell you something. When it relates to sin... In life eternal, there's no such thing as political correctness. We preach the gospel, unvarnished. That's not my opinion. If you, you are blessed with a pastor who preaches the gospel, if you had somebody come up who was an orator and just gives you his opinion without giving you the gospel verses, the Holy Spirit should touch your hearts and say, reject this. But when you see somebody who gives us the gospel back and, and demonstrates that whatever word he has, that that word is supported by the gospel through the Holy Spirit, your heart should be going, amen. 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 That's what should happen. You should hear this. And so Jesus said, it. I'd be a liar like you. Oh, my Jesus. You're not trying to win friends here, are you? No, he's not. This isn't about trying to win friends. It's about bringing the gospel to a lost world. And so here he says in 56, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. How do you like that? Abraham knew 
and saw it through the spirit that Jesus would one day come. And look what the crowd says in verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old. The Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham. They don't get it. They don't get it. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I am. And if you were a Jew and you heard that, your head would explode. Why? Because you would remember what God said from the burning bush to Moses when Moses said, when I go back, when I go back, who am I going to say you are? Who am I going to tell them sent me? You tell them, I am that I am. Oh, man. Are you kidding me? It's like, that's everything. I am that I am. And Jesus used the same words. And so Jesus knew, knew that they would not accept him as he was, but that it had to be taught. God has come to be with us. God has come there. In fact, when Jesus first got up early in his ministry to speak, he was asked to read a passage in the synagogue. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 21. That's why I say the evidence of who Jesus is is so overwhelming. Overwhelming. Luke 4, verse 21. Actually, and I always do this, my wife says, I then wind up giving different verses. All right. Verse 16. We'll start there. He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. This is Jesus now. And as he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. What does that mean? It means that, the, that every day they had different readings. They didn't have the same reading every day. And on this particular day, it was Isaiah chapter 61. Of course, they didn't have chapters then. The Isaiah, they give him the scroll and they said, go ahead, you read it. And here's what Jesus reads that day in the beginning of his ministry, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written and he, he found it. You want to read Isaiah? I can see Jesus saying, you want to read Isaiah? I'll give you Isaiah. Verse 18. And this is a direct quote. This is right out of Isaiah 61. And you can read it at home. Verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll, hands it in, and sits down. And guess what? Everybody in the synagogue is like, their eyes are fastened on him. That's not just somebody getting up and reading words. That's somebody that's living those words. And they knew through the Spirit that something something different had taken place. Uh, and Jesus said to them in verse 21, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Honestly, through the Spirit, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. When I think of that, that Jesus coming in to a synagogue like that in front of people who should have known, who should have expected, who should have recognized that 1,900 years God had prepared them, and now God himself is there. And so one of the things that you learn uh, is that even for us as Christians, 
we're constantly learning. You know, we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We believe that he's God. And yet we still don't properly understand all the references in the scripture about him. All the things that God had done. And we try to teach and we try to learn, but we still fall short. And one of the passages in the Bible that points this out is Jesus on the walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. Here it is. On the third day, on the third day, and Cleopas, one of the disciples and another disciple unnamed, are walking, crestfallen. Their world has been destroyed. Their very world has been destroyed because Jesus, their leader, is dead. It's dead. And now it's all over. And so they're walking away uh, and heartbroken, completely heartbroken. And turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Let me see. Uh, 24, yes. Thank you. I'm so, I appreciate that. Luke 24, verse 27. Thank you, brother. Luke 24, verse 27. And here they say, Jesus says to them, don't you realize that all the things that were written in the scripture about who Jesus was and that something dramatic would happen on the third day because they say to him, it's the third day and he's dead. And so Jesus starts, look at verse 25, okay? He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Now understand what's about to take place. Jesus is about to walk with them three or four hours on this seven-mile road from Emmaus. Uh, and as he's walking, Jesus is going to open up the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he's going to teach them everything that was in the scriptures about him. It had to be the world's greatest Bible study. Can you imagine having God himself sit there and open it up? God. And so, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. From Moses, through the prophets, to the Psalms, Jesus is telling them, it's all about me. Of course, they didn't know it was about him. They didn't know it was Jesus. He had disguised himself. And yet it was so clear. It resonated with them. It resonated with them. And as they approached it, the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked, him, they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? And they went back. That's what Jesus does. Now you understand it. When you hear the story of Jesus, when you hear these things, the Holy Spirit is in you and your spirit should be resonating and you should be saying yes, 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 amen. And this is the message we have to give to a lost world. And I pray today that when you leave here, you're going to be on fire to find opportunities. You need, when you fly in a plane, you need to make this prayer. Lord, put somebody next to me that needs to hear the message of Jesus. Make that prayer. When I go into town, Lord, let me sit in a diner next to somebody that needs to hear this message. When you go in to eat in a restaurant, do you say grace? 
Do you say grace? Do you bow your head? Or do you kind of mumble it? Because you don't want people to know you're one of those Christians. Instead, bow your head. And I know somebody who will say to the waitresses, we're going to say grace. Is there anything that I can pray for you about? And more often than not, they give them a list of things to be prayed for. The world is desperate. They don't know it. They're wandering around lost. They don't know it, but you know it. And so what you need to have is the courage to speak up and step up and and say what God wants you to say. And so it's so important as you need to know this. I've tried to give you some of the things, the source materials that will help you in this regard. And, And we see that that. Uh, there are so many, so many prophecies about who Jesus was. Uh, I believe the last time I tried to count it, I believe there were 300, 300 prophecies in Scripture about Jesus. And I, I indicate some of these here. Uh, some of them are incredible that he would be born in Bethlehem. How about that? Born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was like a truck stop. Okay? How do you like that? Uh, written four or five hundred years before that, that the greatest... Uh, act in the history of the world would take place in a truck stop. Uh, I mean, no mere guess uh, that that the Messiah would spend a season in Egypt. Yes, he did. He spent a season in Egypt because uh, Herod tried to destroy all the young people, all the young men, uh, that he would be rejected by his own. Well, that doesn't make sense. The Messiah is going to be rejected by the Jewish people? God wrote it. God portrayed it. That when Jesus would be betrayed that the betrayal money would buy a potter's field. How do you like that? Can you imagine? That was, of course, that was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11. Um, and that, that he would be spat upon, that he would be struck, that he would be crucified with criminals. Now, who would go and make a prophecy like that about your king, about your Messiah? But God did. God did. Uh, and then... One of the most incredible, that he would die with the poor, but he would be buried with the rich. Well, you read that and you say, this doesn't make sense to me. Yes, it does, because here's what happens. He's dying. He's dying there uh, among the criminals. He's dying there with the poor. And yet on his death, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem, along with Nicodemus, would come and take the corpse of Jesus Christ from the cross and put him in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man's tomb. Folks, accident? Please. Accident? It's God writing a road map, making it clear to you that over and over And over again, God spoke to us and said, I'm sending Jesus. He is my son. He will die for your sins. You believe in him. You will live forever. You will live forever. And that's the message that we have to give to a lost world. And so I pray today that that this uh, you reflect on these words, that you think about these words, uh, about how significant it is. The evidence about who Jesus was is so significant, so staggering, so overwhelming, written for thousands of years before. And our job is to make sure that a lost world gets it. Let me close in prayer as we do this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you, Father, for Jesus. I thank you for Scripture. 
I thank you, Lord, that you have given us a way to have eternal life. And now, Lord, I ask you that you give our dear people today the courage to stand up for our faith, the courage to reach out to a lost world, the, tur- the courage to teach people who don't know any better a beginning understanding about who Jesus was so that we may see them come to you, Father, because we know that's what your expectation is for us. Lord, I thank you for the grace to be able to come here to this wonderful church. I ask you to bless this pastor and bless these people. I ask you to let this lesson resonate in our hearts and grow every moment as we reflect on it, as we put all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.